This is Still Standing with Michael Caputo, episode 33. Coming up on today's show, what's next out of the DOJ and the bossy news coming at you right now on Still Standing. No talking points, no spin, it's politics you can't put down. This is Still Standing with Michael Caputo. Thanks a lot for tuning in. I really appreciate it. A lot of things going on this week. A lot of things going on all the time in Trump world. There's no question about that. But, you know, just when you think you're going to have a week when you can talk about something else, you can't talk about anything else, right? <laughs> we're, we're watching as uh, Representative Jerry Nadler, the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, actually is going to find uh, the uh, Attorney General of the United States in contempt for not breaking the law, for not breaking the law. It's, we, we've come to the point now where it's very, very, very clear, abundantly clear, that uh, the left, the Democrats, those who have organized this uh, spying operation on the, you know, the, the operation that spied on the Republican candidate for president of the United States, those who were involved in this from the very beginning, are starting to get very nervous. You know, wh- when all of this began, I found this talk of deep state and uh, this attempt to take down Donald Trump a little bit off the wall. And two years later, well, over two years later, I actually, you know, I wear, I have a t-shirt that says Deep State University. This is real, ladies and gentlemen. I come from a pretty, you know, uh, pretty middle-of-the-road American background. I, I grew up in, you know, flyover country, Buffalo, New York, out in Lima, Ohio, and farm country. You know, I have family in both those areas, I have family all over the country now. I'm not a New York City guy, a Washington, D.C. guy. I'm also not a conspiracy guy. You know, I'm probably a more average than most of the folks who got wrapped up in this whole bogus Russia hoax. Uh, so, I, you know, I'm kind of resistant to the higher, you know, my, you know the, the higher vitriol, the, 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 the louder complaints about, you know, deep state and whatever. You know, I know Roger Stone very well. He's one of my dearest friends. And in fact, I've known him for 30 years, and I remember him talking about a deep state decades ago, and and I would kind of giggle about it, you know, and you know, I'd give him a little bit of hell about it, you know, about him being paranoid and look out, somebody's behind you, and I'd rib him, you know. You probably have friends like that too, who have always talked about this deep state, you know, the government, you know, Big Brother and all that stuff. I knew that we had a over, you know, our, our federal government has overstepped a lot. I knew that we had, you know, people within the, uh, the the national security apparatus and NSA, NSA, FBI, CIA, people could overstep their bounds. I didn't ever think what happened in the last, you know, two, three years could have ever happened. I didn't think it was possible that the CIA, the FBI, and other national security agencies, the National Security Council, uh, even the uh, the U.S. Ambassador's Office and in in, uh, in uh, the United Nations uh, would join hands with foreign spying, you know, allies like UK and Australia and others to sp- 
spy upon one of the political parties candidate for president. I just I could never have imagined it. To me, that's just even thinking that could happen was beyond my ability to comprehend. And now, a couple of years later, I'm I'm a full blown believer in the deep state. I absolutely, positively think that this is it's exactly what happened. There are members of the FBI, the CIA, and the DOJ, probably some buried in the NSA, although we're going to find out that Admiral Rogers of the NSA is a, is a national hero. I think we're going to find out because he blew the whistle on all these guys. But all these people are now scared. I mean, John Brennan, he's got to be scared of William Barr as Attorney General. John Brennan, the former CIA director on, under Barack Obama, he's got to be scared. Now we're seeing some uh, reporting that indicates that Clapper was the one uh, along John, alongside John Brennan, excitedly pushing this dossier around and trying to get all of this, uh, the different moves, the different tactics of the spying operation going, you know, traveling overseas to inject this whole hoax into the, into the bloodstream of international intelligence. It's, you know, it's we see you know now that that Clapper is the head of the uh, the, the of of, uh, of intelligence for, for the United States for the White House was working for it as well. We see that that the National Security Advisor uh, Susan Rice very clearly was unmasking people that she probably should not have unmasked. It was, it was all designed to give the Barack Obama White House and probably, therefore, Hillary Clinton's campaign internal knowledge of what was going on with Donald Trump. Let that sink in for a minute. They did this to actually stop him from being president. And when they couldn't stop him, they did this in order to to completely uh, uh, you know, tie his hands as president and hopefully run him out of the office of the presidency. And here they are. Two plus years into into President Trump's first term, and their whole hoax has fallen apart. And now they're looking at a guy like Attorney General William Barr, someone who could really and truly stand tall and bring these people to justice. They've got to be scared. They've got to be scared. Some of them are probably facing felonies. We're going to recognize some of the names that are brought in. And here's the way that I think it's going to go down. And now, you're talking to somebody, me, Michael Caputo, as, uh, who has very little faith in anything going well. After enduring two, two years of the Mueller investigation, the House and the Senate, and, and both the House and the Senate continuing with their investigation into this collusion delusion now, I'm pretty jaded. I don't believe that the American government is working for the American people. But let's just say that in the in the appointment of William Barr, Donald Trump actually appointed somebody to clean this up. Let's just have faith for one moment. If, in fact, William Barr it came in to be attorney general to, to clean up everything, obviously with Sessions – as Attorney General and others around Sessions, Rosenstein and others, put into play with the Inspector General and elsewise at the Department of Justice, that stuff is not going to be enough. Some say that Inspector General Horowitz at the Department of Justice 
you know, that he operates pretty independently, that he's a pretty straight shooting guy. It appears that he is, but I don't believe that any inspector general of any American government uh, department is ever going to indict the entire agency. And what we have, the Department of Justice, is a place that is shot through with politics and corruption. Shot through. I think you got to clean it out, if not with a flamethrower, then certainly, certainly a fire hose. Do we have someone in Attorney General William Barr who will do that? I don't know. But the Attorney General's uh, looking forward to the Inspector General report. I don't think he's going to get, we are going to get what we want out of Horowitz's Inspector General report. He's never going to indict the entire agency. He's going to find certain people as bad actors. I think we can actually see some referrals mentioned in this report. If we don't see any criminal referrals coming out of the Horowitz report, that is your first marker that is an absolute whitewash about what went on in the Department of Justice. I don't expect Horowitz to come up with anything because I, you know, my attorney, former uh, New York Attorney General Dennis Vacco, tried to report uh, an FBI informant who came to me as well as other strange contacts uh, during the campaign that I experienced. And Horowitz never got back to us. We wrote him in the summer of 2018, got no answer. Wrote him in the January of 2019, just a few months ago, got no answer. I don't believe that Horowitz is really looking in as deeply as he should. Just my personal experience, I want to be wrong. I don't see Horowitz as a guy who's totally and completely motivated to turn the, the, you know, the Department of Justice upside down. That's the only way we're going to do this. But I don't expect to see it. If we do, God bless him. Uh, but you know, after that report comes out, uh, there should be enough there if Horowitz did half his job to to bring William Barr into a position where he needs to appoint a appoint someone internally to begin an investigation, a broad investigation into the people who caused this crossfire hurricane to begin in late July twenty. 16. Obviously, it began before that, but the full investigation officially began and was named on July 31st. Anybody tells you that nothing started, no investigation happened before July 31st, 2016, they're lying to you. Obviously, so much more has gone on, and we're going to find out only if we see an individual, a prosecutor appointed inside Department of Justice at a minimum to investigate this. To find the people, the culprits, the the clappers, the uh, the Brennans, the the Rices, the people that we we see too close to the flame here, whose whose behavior is too hinky, too questionable. Somebody's got to be indicted, and if, you know if the inspector general doesn't refer someone for prosecution, some criminal referral, that may we may see William Barr back off of appointing somebody internally to look into these things, as he said. He said he's assembling a team, but if the inspector general's report whitewashes this stuff, maybe he won't. We will see a, the first judge of William Barr's character since the report came up, because obviously he has stood up for the rule of law in the face of the Mueller report, the scrutiny around it, and all of the political vitriol in the release. He's done everything right. But if the IG doesn't doesn't criminally refer someone, perhaps William Barr doesn't have the political wherewithal to create and appoint a special you know a prosecutor inside. You know, maybe it's another special counsel. Don't know. 
But obviously, it's not enough to have the Department of Justice investigate the Department of Justice. As much as I believe in William Barr, and as much hope as I have, actually, I've only gained this hope that whoever put my family through this and all these other families through this in this bogus Russia collusion delusion, whoever started this, whoever put this together, needs to pay. What my family's been through, with dozens of other families have been through, most of them far worse off than my family. We deserve justice. That begins with an inspector general report that refers criminals. That begins with the William Barr appointing a prosecutor of some type to look into this more deeply. But we need more. And you know what we need? I've thought about this a lot. We need a new church committee. I don't know if, you, if you're familiar with what went down with the church committee, but it was created in the 70s. It was a, a Senate special, uh, you know, a Senate select committee, they call it, right? In the early years of the 70s, there was really troubling news coming out of the CIA and the FBI and the National Security Agency, the NSA, not so much the culprit this time around, not, at least not the leadership, but the, these intelligence agencies were doing things like opening people's mail. They were allowed to look at the outside of the mail, but they were not, not allowed to look at the inside and copying it. Completely against the law, didn't have the warrant for it. And uh, there was actually a report um, uh, uh, that was issued by the New York Times that brought forth a Senate Select Committee called the Church Committee. It was put together um, and, and, and started a, a series of hearings into what the CIA, the, the FBI, and the NSA was actually up to. And they, in April, I guess, 1976, reported out findings that were very controversial. But hundreds and hundreds of people lost their jobs in the CIA and the FBI and in the NSA. The final report was damning. And there was, it was also, you know, the Republicans hated it and the Democrats loved it because right now, of course, we're in the, you know, we're in the upside down. You know, now the Democrats love the CIA and Republicans are skeptical of it. Now the Democrats are applauding for the FBI and the Republicans want a closer look at it. It is bizarre. But even in this bizarre world, Americans deserve a proper investigation and we can't trust the Department of Justice to do it all. It's not just about the Department of Justice anyway. It's certainly not just about the FBI. Maine justice was corrupt. Remember, as uh, Attorney General Loretta Lynch met with Bill Clinton on the tarmac at the Phoenix airport. Why did that happen? We don't know. We've seen some testimony about this in, in different investigations, but we haven't had a proper full investigation of what went down there. We don't know. So this goes back quite a ways. And if you expect the Department of Justice to investigate the Department of Justice properly, Perhaps they can do a lot of it, but they can't do it all. I believe a Senate Select Committee, just like the Church Committee, you know, I, I believe uh, this should be headed up, in my mind, by Lindsey Graham. Lindsey Graham in the United States Senate has shown the most, for, you know, intestinal fortitude to go after this stuff. It's certainly not uh, Senator Barr, uh, Senator Burr of the Senate Intelligence Committee. He shouldn't be anywhere near this thing. 
Obviously, the Senate Intelligence Committee, if you know the history of it, the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence actually came out of the Church Committee in the, in the late 70s. One of the recommendations that came out of the Church Committee was a permanent Select Committee on Intelligence in the Senate, and we've got that. But now, if you look at the Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, ladies and gentlemen, it is befouled. The investigators at the Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence in the Senate work directly with Fusion GPS. It's a fact. It's a fact. It's not clear why Senator Warner rides roughshod over the Republican chairman, Senator Burr, but he does. And the, the, the entire Fusion GPS operation is funded by a veteran uh, investigator from the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. The Fusion GPS debacle is funded by a person who is fresh off the staff offices of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. So if you wonder why the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence uh, subpoenaed Donald Trump Jr., all you have to do is understand that the head of security, the nonpartisan head of security for the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence was sleeping with a New York Times reporter, giving her all the information, giving her, leaking her documents, leaking, leaking her all kinds of things for stories directly from testimony and the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. When he was caught, he was not punished for it. He said he wanted to call senators from the committee forward in his trial in order to speak to his character. None of those senators wanted to go in front of the American people and speak in favor of a guy who leaked. So he was not punished for the majority of what he did. This is the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. This is the result of what was one of the most controversial select committees in the history of the United States Senate until recently, the Church Committee. What happened, what came out of the Church Committee is no longer effective. We need a new one. One thing I know is that people, men and women, who signed up in the alphabet agencies, CIA, FBI, elsewhere, uh, after the Church Committee in the 80s when I first went to Washington, in the 80s, you know, you know, four or five years after the Church Committee report and hundreds of CIA agents and hundreds of FBI agents, more CIA agents, and people out of the NSA were all fired and had to leave the federal government, lost their retirements, had to start off all over again, right? I'll tell you, during the years after those people were riffed, this young person came into the CIA. I know a guy who did this. And he was in one of the break areas and somebody brought up something about politics and he heard one of the older fellows in, uh, one of the, from the agency say, if you want to know what's good for you, you need to look up the church committee and understand why you should never mention politics in this building ever again if you have any designs on having a career in the CIA. Everybody, all the young, new agents coming in, whether they were CIA, FBI, whatever, they were all warned in the 80s, stay away from politics. But all those grizzled old salts, those veterans of the spying agencies of the United States government, they're all retired now. And now in the Department of Justice, in the CIA, in the FBI, they are, they are inherently political, overtly political. The CIA under John Brennan was practically a political party, practically a, practically a political committee of the, of the Clinton campaign. They are, they are completely political, completely political. DOJ, everybody who knows anything about the DOJ, anybody who used to work there or, 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 or works with them now will tell you it is a left-leaning organization. The higher you get to the top, the closer you get to main justice, the, the more leftist they are.
This needs to be cleaned out. We need a Graham committee. We need it now. We're going to see the IG report come out in a couple of weeks. There are more reports that are going to come out if William Barr, as the new attorney general, does not appoint a prosecutor of some type to look into all of this wrongdoing, everything that went down to clear Hillary's name and to and to try to destroy Donald Trump, all those extra legal things that they did need to be absolutely exposed. That's going to take the DOJ and the United States Senate. From my opinion, that's the only way to do it. I have not had any hope at all that any of this would ever happen, that anyone would ever see the business end of a prison cell who did this to my family, who did this to the president of the United States, who did this to, to people I know for many years and, and who I respect immensely. All of these people, I thought there's no way they're going down. This country's not built for that. It's a two-tiered justice system. Just us, I call it. A lot of people do. Just us. There's a tier for Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama and and uh, Attorney General Loretta Lynch and the tier for all the other people. The, the, for the Jussie Smollett's of the world, right? That tier who gets away with everything. And the tier for you and for me. And the only way the real the people in flyover country America, those of us out here far away from the Beltway and the and and the and all the money vaults of of New York City, if we don't see these signs from Washington D.C., from the Department of Justice, from the United States Senate, we are going to know absolutely this is a whitewash. That's my opinion. I got to tell you, I get fired up about it because, frankly, my family has been put through a lot. But again, and I can't, I can't, I can't possibly say this enough. My family is just one of dozens of families, many of which were crushed far worse than my family was. I just have a big mouth, and I don't mind talking about it. One thing it's important to know is that I've been advised by my attorneys to never speak about House Intelligence, House Judiciary, Senate Intelligence, and the, uh, and the Mueller investigation, never to badmouth them because I've been told that if, they, if I do and I offend someone over there, I will be called in for more testimony. You see, they don't necessarily want to just bust you with something legally, not in the House and the Senate. Certainly in the DOJ they do. But their vengeance is taken out on you just by causing you legal problems. So you have to hire an attorney and it costs you tens of thousands of dollars, if not like my family, well over 200000 They want to just cost you money, break you, bankrupt you. And they'll do that if they just are offended by what you say on Fox television. That's what my attorneys told me. So if you think I have the First Amendment right that I was born with, that God gave me through the founding fathers of this nation, I do not. If you're listening to this podcast, I can tell you that somebody else is too, and they're not happy about it. What does that mean to me and my family? More importantly, what does that mean to you and your family? Because I live just outside Buffalo, New York, ladies and gentlemen. I am no different than anybody else, and if it can happen to me, it can certainly happen to you. Still standing. Please remain standing. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to Still Standing with Michael Caputo. I'm Michael Caputo, as you know, and I appreciate you sticking around for the second segment of this week's podcast. I especially appreciate our Still Standing executive producers like Bill Grant, Brian Pesdursky, Daniel Markey, Darcy Swenson, George Noonan, Greg Mumbach, and Henry Wotazic, Jack Bromwich, John Seifert, Jordan Gostomsky, Mark Berry, my old pal Mark, Patty Freeling, Samantha Lynn, Sonia Carlin, Steve Flaminio, Susan Havey, Susan Stevens, and Thomas Fulton, and of course, uh, Julie, Michael, Rachel, and Roberto. All these folks are supporting us over at patreon.com with their pledges. Really not much uh, 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 it really gets past these folks. They listen every week. I really appreciate their input. Get a lot of emails from them, and I, I, I appreciate the indulgence from every one of you who actually spends time to listen to little old me. You know, it's uh, you know, I spend most of my time, uh, you know, I grew up in a working class family, Ohio, New York, most of my time in East Aurora, New York, a little village outside of Buffalo. I left here and, you know, directly after I got out of the army, I went to college here in Buffalo, but got out of here when I graduated from University of Buffalo. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a person of Washington, an animal of Washington, but I spent a lot of time there. I've, I lived there, there for well over a decade before I moved to Russia in 1994, where I spent six, seven years. And, uh, uh, you know, I know how Washington works. I get it. I spent my time. I worked on presidential campaigns, Reagan and Bush 41, uh, as well as, uh, Jack Kemp, 88, uh, love Jack Kemp. Uh, I worked in House, uh, in the House Representatives, in the House Radio TV Gallery. I got a pretty good view of how the House and the Senate work from a leadership office. You know, I've been around Washington in the nonprofit sector, in the lobbying sector, in the PR agency sector. I've done just about everything in Washington. I, I know how that place works. And what you're seeing in the news isn't normally what's really going on, especially when it comes to the dark side politics of things. And uh, I'll, you know, just wade into this bit for a minute. I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it because I saw the president, uh, at least, you know, it was rumored, you can't really believe the anonymous sourced stories out there, that the president is angry with David Bossie, his campaign manager at the close of the campaign, and uh, for what some people are characterizing as unsavory actions uh, in uh, with a pack that he runs, that he founded and runs. And, you know, basically people are accusing him of making a lot of money off of his association with Donald Trump. I've known Donald Trump since 1988. I've known David Bossie since 1986, I think. Um, David Bossie is someone who is above reproach in Washington. He's not someone I would ever expect to be ripping off donors or doing what, what what is kind of generally without proof being accused of him in this situation. I understand the president's angry with him. For him, uh, at least with the appearance of making tons of money off his association with the president, and this money, according to his critics, David Bossie's critics, is not going to candidates, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't think it's really uh, what's happening is really what it seems. We don't really know if the president is angry with David. You know, David helped helped him uh, get across the finish line in 2016. David's a brilliant man, and he's been a strong supporter of the president every day since. 
David is also someone who has run a variety of Washington-based political organizations that have always raised their money in direct mail. When I say direct mail, I'm talking about the paper envelopes that come in your door that are addressed to you, that, 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 that talk to you about issues that you care about. It's a sophisticated fundraising arena, by the way, that has always meant spending a lot of money to make a little money. Now, it's reliably profitable if you have a good message and, you're, and you have the budget that's necessary to build a, a large list of donors. You know, a lot of today's political organizations in Washington raise money chiefly online. It's not as successful, especially according to some who are experienced at this. Not as successful as real, honest-to-God direct mail, which is targeted at older people. When I say older people, I just mean people in their 50s and older. Young people don't open direct mail. People my age and older do, right? And Bossy's been in this business for a while. He has worked at Citizens United for a long, long time, and Citizens United has raised millions of dollars this way. It's the way America does politics. But it's it looks... You can paint it as unsavory. And that's what someone has done in defining what, is, what David Bossie did and defining that to the president. If you understand direct mail, if you receive this in your mailbox, you probably don't get what's really behind it. You have to buy a list or rent a list. You have to you know, design the mail, write the mail, design it, print it. Up in, you know, you got to send millions of, of pieces if you want to raise large amounts of money. And typically the donors give a small amount of money, 25, 30 bucks in reply. You can give them premiums, red hats, you know, um, uh, books like Bossy did. Bossy was giving his own book, right? Uh, which, of course, you would do. He was also giving other people's books, uh, especially, I think, a book by Newt Gingrich, which is very popular. And, uh, you know, that way your donors will give a little more money if they get a book. If they get something of value in return, they give more money. And the book might be sold for $25, bucks, $24.99 on Amazon. But, you know, if you're the head of a pack like David is, you get it for cheaper. So your, your organization is actually able to raise a little money on the book as well. So if you, let's say, I'm going to just be really general here. If you... Want to raise, I don't know, a million bucks. You got you to spend a lot of time doing it. First of all, let's just use round numbers. You spend a half a million dollars on a piece of mail. If you're lucky, it comes back with total revenues of $600,000. So you have made, so to speak, $100,000 because a lot of the donations go to paying for the mail. You have, you know, a lot of these mail houses actually front the money. They front the mail. So the money has to go to them first. You're, you're actually paying for, um, uh, for the list that you're using to put out this mail. This first, you're, you're prospecting, as they call it, renting lists that might work for you, might work for your issue. If you're raising money to, to help, help elect pro-Trump Republicans, you might rent the Trump list, for example. You might rent... Um, you know, uh, another list, you know, one of these other Trump organizations, you might rent some, let's say, um, turning point USA, that pro Trump youth group, you might rent their list. And frankly, the list rental business is so big in Washington that Charlie Kirk, who founded turning point USA, wouldn't even hear if you rented his list. It is 
daily business there. So you've made $100,000 spending a half a million, right? And you're getting back, let's say, fifty dollars to $80,000. I'm sorry, fifty dollars to 80000 donors, you know, small dollar donors, right? You now have a house file, people who have given to you. You own that name. You don't have to rent it from anyone. In fact, as you build this list up, you can rent it to other people. But that's not enough to grow an organization on. You have to go back in the mail again. So you take the $100,000 that you made and you go to the, to the list broker in the mail house and you say, loan me again what it costs for me to rent the list that I need to make more money, all brand new names, send the same mail piece out. And they do, and it comes back, and you spent a half a million dollars, and you made six hundred and fifty. So you got another hundred and fifty in profit, and yet you, you and you have eighty thousand new names, let's say, or whatever the number is, and you add that to your house file. It's a little bit bigger, but it's not big enough to sustain an organization. And undoubtedly, Dave Bossy, as everyone else does in in direct mail, was churning a lot of money in and out in order to grow a house file that could support the organization without having to rent lists and 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 such. You know, put to put up that big upfront cost if you own several thousand, you know, tens of thousands of names who have reliably given you money. You don't have to rent lists and, and add to it as much as you might have to in order to raise money. So they say that Bossy raised upwards of 14 million, something like that, 12.3, whatever it is, right? The vast majority of that money was poured right back into the fundraising machine. Somebody undoubtedly told the president and they're telling the media that David Bossy made 13 million bucks. Well, he didn't make 13 million bucks. He's using 13 million bucks in order to raise enough money to be effective in the 2020 elections. That's the way it works in Washington. It's complicated. It's expensive. They kill a lot of trees. And also, if you just break it down into its most offensive numbers and offensive dollars, you can make this out to sound like somebody made a mint. I'm here to tell you that David Bossy did not make millions of dollars off of Donald Trump. He's given some of the money to candidates, not a lot. It's a small percent, but that's because the vast majority of the money he's raising goes back into raising more money. The only way his group presidential coalition can be an effective player in the 2020 information marketplace is to have a big house list. And it takes a lot of money to raise that you got to raise a lot of money and spend a lot of money to put that size of a list together. If the presidential coalition doesn't have a couple of million people on their list that they know they can rely upon, if they don't have that list together by, let's say, April of 2020, they, they're going to be completely ineffective in 2020. So Bossy was likely racing trying to get as much mail out and in, et cetera, to try to build this list as fast as he could to be effective for the president in 2020. He gave out some money in 2018 to candidates, but he didn't have much because it was going into mail. Do you hear that in Politico.com or, or any of the other organizations that are hanging David Bossy out to dry? No, you don't. Now, they're saying that you know, somebody said Corey Lewandowski is mixed up in this because he's an ally of David Bossy. So what? I don't care. You know, I mean, this is the way Washington fundraising operations work. And somebody hung David Bossy out to dry. 
somebody who wanted more influence over the 2020 campaign uh, and needed some of his. Somebody who was jealous with the fundraising operation. There are some who say that every dollar raised outside of the campaign and it's blessed super PAC. Some say that that's money that, that should rightfully belong to the president. Yeah, I get that. The more super PACs in support of the president there are, the, you know, the, the more shallow the pool of money gets. You have to spread it out more. That's not typically the way you effectively reelect a president. You want to keep the number of PACs down. You want to keep the, 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 the amount of money in those fewer PACs high. But ladies and gentlemen, God bless Donald Trump and whatever he believes he should do in order to get this stuff in line, he should do. It is his election. But David Bossy did nothing wrong. David Bossy was building something to use as a weapon for the president in 2020. And everybody who wrote stories to shove it up his backside, if they know anything at all about Washington, then they're lying to you. Washington's first sin is always omission. And by omitting the details, you know, here and there, you'll see in these stories that, you know, bossies poured most of that money back into raising more money, but they don't, you know, they make it actually sound bad. Like, like spending money to raise money is not proper. You should be able to just put your hand out and people put money in it. It costs money to raise money. Nobody knows that better than David Bossy. And unfortunately, he got hung out to dry. I'm hoping that he's able to explain this uh, properly and, and get back in, into good graces with the president. David Bossy is an incredible guy. He's very effective. He was a great campaign manager. I'm quite certain that any team without David Bossy in the next election will not be as good as a team with David Bossy. So I, you know, I look, I'm not, I don't live in Washington. I'm a part of these factions. I'm not really getting into this. I know people undoubtedly, I know how Washington works. Somebody sabotaged David Bossy. That's the way it goes. That's the way people work. They want David Bossy's position on the campaign. They want David Bossy gone because of a, you know, a, a disagreement with him in, in, in 2004. They want David Bossy gone because they don't like the way he dresses. They want David Bossy gone because he's really good. And he's got to be gone or Donald Trump might win re-election. See, we got to pay attention to who's on our side and who's not. And we got to understand what they're going to do to try to stop the president. One of the things they'll do is they'll try to take out his senior advisors. That's what they did to Paul Manafort. That's what they did. They've done so many times. And when I say they, I mean people who don't want Donald Trump to be president again. They don't want him reelected. They're going to take out Bossy. They're going to try to take out everybody else one by one by one. And, uh, you know, we can't let it work. I hope David and, and the president uh, uh, patch things up. I know that the, the David cares a lot about the future of this presidency and, and that we need him working with us in 2020. Uh, so listen, uh, don't believe everything you hear. Uh, certainly when you hear bad things about good people, don't believe it. There's a lot more to it than that. Uh, David Bossy is doing what everybody else does to raise money. He's doing it with the president's name, which might be against what he and the president had agreed. I don't know, and it's not my business. It's David's business. It's the president's business. Let's hope they get down to business and get to the bottom of this and remain friends. We need David Bossy. Still standing. Unstained. 
Thanks a lot for listening to the end here for today's episode of Still Standing. We've done 33 episodes now, and uh, we're now on radio.com and uh, getting a lot more uh, uh, people uh, signing up and subscribing. You can subscribe at iTunes. That's the best place to subscribe. Or you can go to stillstandingpodcast.com. There, I've got a few videos. I do them every other week or so, even some blogging. But certainly find all my audio podcasts. That's the home of Still Standing with Michael Caputo. Right now, I'm actually working on a on an opinion article for a news, news organization. It's uh, one I'm finding really difficult to write. Actually, it's about it's about opioids. You know, when I was uh, when my family and I went to visit the president, and the first lady, a couple of weeks ago in the Oval Office. When I walked in, the president was talking about opioids. He actually was on his way to Atlanta where he gave a speech on, on the uh, opioid uh, crisis. We're in a real crisis. We really are. I'm, I've been following this pretty closely. I'm going to write about uh, some experiences with my family. It's serious stuff. I mean, there are more and more. I mean, places like Ohio, West Virginia, Indiana, they have real problems. New Jersey is a battleground for this stuff. America is in an absolute and complete crisis. Forget about these manufactured Washington crisis after crisis like Jerry Nadler. is like constitutional crisis because he can't force the attorney general to break the law. Come on. I mean, we really have here is a terrible, terrible crisis among our communities across the United States, not just urban, not just rural, not just suburban, everywhere. These, you know, this heroin and, and especially this fentanyl stuff, it is killing us. I'm confident that the president and the United States Congress are as concerned about this as they should be. We see some good legislation out of the House and the Senate on this stuff. And I really like the focus that the president and the first lady have on this opioid ed- epidemic. It's an epidemic. As I write this thing, I, I, it just breaks my heart to know about it and to know that, I mean, listen, uh, if my family has had experience with this epidemic, your family has too. Maybe it's your cousin or, or, uh, or someone else a little more distant, a second cousin, some, you know, your, 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 your aunts, nephews, you know, people who you would see at Christmas dinner are dying from this stuff. And I'll tell you, if you're in Ohio, West Virginia, Indiana, New Jersey, and here in upstate New York, you're seeing it every single week, more and more in the news. People just dying. And by the, it is not just Darwin. This stuff is deadly and great people, smart people who just had some pain and took a pill and got, got hooked. Some good people dying. It's hard for me to write this. I, I'm I'm, uh, I've got to get back to it, and, and I'll, I'll share it with you next week. I'm sure I'll have it published by next week or the week after. It bugs me, and it should bug you. It bugs the president. It bugs the first lady, and thankfully, it's really gotten into the craw of the United States Congress, too. I'm really interested in seeing what they do. I really believe that the wall has a lot to do with this, but I talk about it a lot when I write about opioids. Last time I wrote an article about opioid abuse, I talked about how it was absolutely necessary to have the wall, and I, I had problems getting that published. People just didn't want to hear about the wall, and now I'm going to make the case to fight this epidemic without bringing up the wall just to see if I can make the case strongly in a very strong 
uh, uh, news outlet that normally would not want to give Donald Trump a, a win, as they say, and publish something pro-wall. This is about the wall, but it's about so much more. Let's see what I come up with. I'll share it with you next week. But, man, thank God we got the president we have. This is Michael Caputo. Thanks a lot for listening to Still Standing. means a lot to me. Remember, sign up at stillstandingpodcast.com. Thank you.